trusting everyone online is like responding, amen, yes. <laughs> uh, let's, let's, be in pr- let's be in prayer too for our technological difficulties we've had. I, I hope that we've figured out some of these issues. Um, and I trust those of you that are right now online that, it, that the stream won't go down. Uh, if it does, uh, we will have a backup on later this week. But, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't like that that's happening. So we're trying to figure these issues out. Shouldn't be an issue from a, a Wi-Fi perspective here in that we have fiber now. So anyways, um, so our, our focus for these last two months uh, has been on taking a closer look at the Beatitudes here in Matthew's Gospel around this theme of Jesus announcing his gospel or announcing the good news. And we've called it the kingdom manifesto. This idea is that the arrival of God's kingdom in Jesus and the invitation that he gives us to follow his way. And he's, he's announcing his manifesto, if you will, of, of who he is and what his kingdom is all about. And so the Beatitudes are part of this. The Beatitudes are sort of part of his Sermon on the Mount And there are eight qualities that Jesus reveals will be present in his followers. Jesus says these eight ways of living will define those who follow his way. And the word blessed for all these beatitudes, when we say blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, that word there is, and I've said this before, but just want to remind us, it's makarios in the Greek. And and it really, it has this idea of being in alignment or being in sync with the kingdom of God. But, but as we've seen, and, and this is what we really have to keep reminding ourselves because of our, um, our nature to be um, driven to, uh, to have to attain something, we have to remind ourselves that we don't have to attain these qualities as such uh, to prove our inclusion into this kingdom. It's not that, that you know, we have to somehow um, prove that we have these. It's more that as we follow Jesus and we get close to him and our, and our lives are being aligned with him and defined by his way, that these qualities begin to flourish and grow within us and become just who we are as followers of Jesus. And so... We come to a beatitude this morning that might be the most comforting, might be the most compelling, but challenging beatitude yet. I I think it's all three of those things uh, for us. So it's Matthew 5, 8, and it's blessed are the poor in heart. Pure, sorry, not poor. Pure. You gotta make, that's, that's important. The pure in heart. We've already gone through the poor in spirit. For they will see God. If you think that slip's bad, I, I saw a video of a pastor with a slip-up this week that I was like, oh man, I hope I would never do that. <laughs> that was nothing. So a few summers back, um, we rented a, a cabin for the very first time. Actually, the only time that we've rented a cabin as a family. And, uh, and we, had, we had this, it was just a beautiful setup on this cabin. The cabin wasn't all that special, but the setup was overlooking uh, Red Rock Lake, and they had this, they had built this newer deck that sort of went uh, almost over the water a little bit, and it was just an incredible place to sit and just enjoy the beauty of God's nature, and I, and I was sitting alone there at, just when we, um, a little while after we'd gotten there, and um, 
I was sitting alone on the deck, and I just, I just remember this moment in time. I was, I was processing some events and, and coming out of some very difficult circumstances, and I, and I found myself there. I was alone. It was quiet. And I just found myself giving myself space to, to feel what was transpiring in my heart. Like what was going on in me. And, and it was this environment that provided this, this place or this space to seek God, to hear God, and to assess my heart. What was really going on inside of me? You know, the, the heart is spoken of consistently throughout Scripture. And, and Jesus follows this pattern by speaking about the heart again and again and again throughout the Gospels. And it becomes clear when you read through the Gospels, that the Gospel writers who are recording sort of what defined Jesus and what he said, they realize the importance of how much Jesus spoke about the heart. And the heart in Scripture, it, it, um, it's not simply spoken of, and I think obviously we know this, but it just bears reminding ourselves that we're not talking about an organ that pumps blood. That's, you know, that, that's the physical heart. But, but Biblically, the heart is seen as the center of a person, the core of a person that includes our feelings, our thoughts, our will. The heart speaks of what's happening inside of us, what is transpiring in our interior world and how it's manifesting in our outer world. And this this focus is all over scripture. So we see this in Proverbs 3, 5, where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 4.23 talks about, says, above all else, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Jeremiah 17.9, Jeremiah takes a bit of a different look, and he talks about there, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure, who can understand it? So there's both the positive aspect of the heart, there's also the reality that we can be really deceived by our own hearts. And so to assess and to pay attention to our hearts, to what's going on inside of us, is spoken of constantly throughout Scripture. To be aware of its condition is, is seen as paramount to our lives. But this beatitude, I think, this blessed of the pure in heart, can leave us uncomfortable. I think we might find ourselves actually wrestling with it if we, if we start to think about it and feeling and this, this feeling of like, blessed are the pure in heart. Like, I don't know if I'm able to walk that out. I, I'm not sure that, that I, uh, you know, you get to this beatitude and you're like, this, this, this is the part of going, this feels challenging to me. The, the Greek word here for pure is katharos, which is where we get our English uh, words cathartic and catharsis from. Uh, it means to be clean. Uh, it, it, uh, it means to be unmixed or unalloyed. There's, there's nothing uh, unpure coming into it. Um, as in like, you know, when we talk about um, unalloyed, like as in pure gold. To be pure in heart means to be unmixed or unalloyed or unadulterated at the center of who we are. See, so you hear that and you go, that sounds really challenging, does it not? That sounds really challenging. 
And, and as we see here and, and throughout the Beatitudes, it's important to remember. This is where I think this is really um, helpful for us to remember that these are not to be seen as eight individual qualities. Like as in, we have some of them, but we may not have others. Or I'm really strong in this area, but I don't really have this. We're meant to see the eight Beatitudes, all of them as interrelated. As if there's just all sorts of connections to all of them. And that all of them are present in those who are following Jesus' way. And, and, the, and so within that, the order that Jesus presents these is intentional. Jesus doesn't begin with pure in heart because it needs to be seen in light of the other five qualities that have come before it. We're we're meant to see the other five qualities that have preceded this quality as being part of pure in heart. And I think that will help us to understand what Jesus is getting at here. We're meant to understand that the pure in heart are first and foremost, they're poor in spirit. They understand their desperation and that they aren't perfect. The pure in heart are also those who mourn. They grieve over their sin. They grieve over the depth of sin in the world. The pure in heart don't see themselves, so to speak, as having arrived. They're they're also meek. They desire, the pure in heart desire to walk with humility. The pure in heart hunger and thirst for righteousness. They want more of God. And they are merciful. The pure in heart, they see their need for mercy and they extend it to others. And so what this reveals to us when you really start to consider all of that is that to be pure in heart is not to be perfect. And this is not about perfection. And really, how could this be about perfection? That, that, that is an impossibility for us as humans who live in a broken and fallen world and in our, and ourselves are dealing with brokenness. There's, no, there's actually no way that we could ever claim to say, I'm pure in heart in, in, a, in, a, in a way that would look to perfection. Now, later in the Sermon on the Mount, because some people might think about this, they might say, well, later when Jesus is talking about loving your enemies, he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So isn't he calling us to perfection? But what he's doing there is he's confronting righteousness that's derived from the law. Yes, if you want your righteousness to come from the law, then we have to be perfect as your Father in heaven's perfect. But as Paul says in Romans 3, Jesus has revealed a righteousness apart from the law. So, taking all that in, if if being pure in heart isn't about perfection, what does Jesus mean? How do we understand what he's saying here? And so, to try and gain some clarity on this this morning, I want to look a little bit closer at two psalms in particular. I want to look at Psalm 51 and Psalm 139, written by David, who is, we are told was a man after God's own heart. And I think it, they'll help us to see how the pure in heart respond to the Lord. So Psalm 139 begins with the words, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. So the pure in heart, first we see they are open to God's examination. David begins with 
stark truth here at the beginning of Psalm 139, at the beginning of Psalm 139 that nothing is hidden from God. And, and while that's true, at, by the end of Psalm 139, David embraces this reality and he invites God to search him and know his heart. So God's already aware. God knows everything about David. But David, he's, what he's doing in this psalm is he's saying, I am opening myself up to God's examination of me. David, he's, he's working this throughout Psalm 139, where he's saying, he, he realizes God is fully aware of everything that's happening in my life. He's fully aware of everything in me. There's, he, he knows there's no escaping God's presence. There's no escaping his intimate knowledge of him. And so we, what we see here is that the pure in heart, they embrace this. They open their lives up to the searching, cleansing, and healing light of God. Now, just kind of breaking away for a sec, Psalm 24.3 asks, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Like who? Who, who could ever do that? And, and verse 4 responds and says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And Psalm 24 goes on to say this, it says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek God's face. So this would suggest that being pure in heart has to do with integrity. That those, who are guard, that those who are guarding themselves against falsehood and deception in their lives, those who recognize the danger of this skewing reality in their lives. And so what we see here is that people who are in sync with God's kingdom are those who seek truth, truth who face truth, who tell truth, who desire to live truth. It's this conscious and intentional act of identifying and rooting out areas of deception in our lives. John Stott says of these people, he says, their whole life, public and private, is transparent before God and men. I, I wonder what we think about that idea. Because I think we know that to live like that goes against every grain and fiber of our society and even against our being. We, we are not, we do not like to do that. Transparency around us is not embraced as something to really practice, to tell truth, to live truth, to just be about truth. But here's where I think this hits the mark. Because it's not that the pure in heart are perfect. In fact, as Proverbs 29 says, who can I say, I, who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. And, and the point of what, what is being asked in that verse is, the answer is no one. No, no one. To, to claim that would be just blind arrogance. And, and that's what we need to grasp. The pure in heart know that they cannot hide anything from God. And so rather than trying to live in this world of like, I can hide stuff and I can keep this sort of away from God, which again, like from what David reveals, it's just utterly futile. To live like that just leaves you into a place of just 
despondency because it's impossible. Rather than that, the pure in heart are open to God's examination that brings the work of the Spirit and the life of Jesus into every part of their life. Second, the pure in heart confess sin and seek healing. So Psalm 51, it comes on the heels. If you read the little part at the beginning of the psalm, you probably may know this, but it comes on the heels of David's affair with Bathsheba. He writes this after he's had this affair, after the attempted cover-up of the affair where he, um, he, that resulted in him ordering the murder of her husband, uh, Uriah. David's actions in that whole scenario, you read it and they are beyond despicable and they had long-term consequences in his, in his family. You know it was Bathsheba's grandfather who was the one that led the, uh, that, that joined and conspired with Absalom to overthrow David? It is, the, the effects of what David did here reverberated for years in his kingdom. So all this happens And in the aftermath, the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to confront David and rebuke him. And and in that moment, rather than try to avoid or dismiss his sin, David owned it. 2 Samuel 12 tells us that David's response was just right to the point. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51 is is David's own words then following this, and it's sobering, it's raw, it's full of vulnerability and honest self-awareness. David, he doesn't seek to cut corners on his sin, he doesn't justify it, he doesn't sanitize it, he doesn't try to make it look not as bad as it was, just owns it. He says, have mercy on me, God. I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, wash away my habitual sin and cleanse me from it. He says, I know that my transgressions and sins is always before me. Against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He says, and then he says to God, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all the sins I keep repeating. There's a humility here in Psalm 51 that can leave us uncomfortable. And I think the reason is because we know deep down that any one of us could be the one writing this psalm. I've asked this question several times as I read through the account of David in the Old Testament. I've just been, my Bible plan's just been taking me through this recently. And I'm like, How can this be the guy that was a man after God's own heart? Like this guy? Like he did stuff that you're like, what are you doing? He did terrible stuff. He didn't address stuff. He let stuff go. The whole situation with Absalom was David just disregarded sin in his family and didn't deal with it. I think this psalm reveals part of the answer. God didn't ignore the sin. There was consequences for David's sin. But how David responded to his sin and his brokenness made all the difference. As God said to Samuel when he first chose David, he's like, I am not looking at the stature and what he looks like physically. I am looking at the heart. 
And it's the response to the sin here on David's part. There's no skirting around it. There's no denying it. There's no hiding it. And there is humble acknowledgement for the pure in heart. When we, when we operate like this, it's acknowledgement of our deficiency and our dependence on the Lord's healing. Psalm 51, 10 to 12. This is part of David's response there. And I, so many times, I think, I think, I'm sure many of us have gone to this in our lives and go, I, I, I identify and I want this. And if you're like me, Keith Green's got a song on this that is just like perfect. It says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit or steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, what, what David's doing there is he's, there's this recognition here that God would be fully justified in doing this. Like he's, he's hearkening back to the first verse in the psalm. Have mercy on me, God. Don't do this. I recognize that this is what I deserve, but please don't do this. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He goes on and says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David owns his sin. He asks God to cleanse him and he admits his need for healing. You know, when you, when you go through the story of David, you see a man who honored and trusted God. I, I mean, the way that David walked out uh, his relationship with Saul is astounding, right? Like, like he just like, despite everything Saul would keep doing to him and trying to kill him, he said, like, I'm not gonna touch God's anointed. But you also see a man with character issues. You see a man with character weaknesses. David was far from perfect but he didn't try and cover over his deficiencies. Third thing, the pure in heart. What does Jesus say? The pure in heart admit they have blind spots. So I wanna, I wanna take us back to Psalm 139 where David invites God to search him and to know his heart. And he ends the psalm with an invitation to the Lord. He says, see if there's any any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So the entirety of this psalm shows an individual who models deeply formed interior examination. But here at the end, we also, we get this sense that, that David knows that while God is aware of everything, there are still gaps in what he knows about himself. This, this is David asking God, if you will, please show me me. Because the reality is we all have blind spots. I'm sure many of you have had these situations. I have had several in the last number of years where you go to change lanes and you think that the coast is clear and maybe you've done a shoulder check, maybe you haven't. But even when you have, and I've had this happen several times, usually on vacation in our van, and, and I'll, I'll even shoulder check, and then I'll, and all of a sudden I go to change lanes, and like it's a near collision, and I go, oh my, and Jess like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I didn't see that guy. 
Like, honestly, I didn't see that person. They were completely in my blind spot. Now, I'm not, I should have looked more, right? I should have been a little bit more studious. But, and so, so many times I've had those, like there's some I can remember that have been so, so close shaves and I'm like, wow, Lord, thank you. But it's where that vehicle is completely in our blind spot. The same is true for every one of us in our lives. We, we have blind spots where even if we think we're in the clear and even if we think everything looks good, we can be unaware of what's actually there. And, and so to deny that we have blind spots or to admit that we do, but really you know, make very little effort to really examine them in our lives, like whatever, is extremely dangerous. And, and that, those are the areas that Satan see, will seek to exploit and manipulate in your life and key in on. And so what, what can we do? Or I would say, what must we do as followers of Jesus if we are committed and we desire spiritual formation and growth in our lives? What, what do we do about this? And the end of Psalm 139 provides us with an answer. We invite God into our lives to reveal to us where there are ways in us that are not in sync with his way. Dallas Willard, he speaks of us, the need for us to open our hearts, and he says this, Jesus saves us by realistic restoration of our heart to God and then by dwelling there with his Father through the distinctively divine Spirit. The heart thus renovated and inhabited is the only real hope of humanity on earth. Just consider everything that's happening right now in this world. Big picture. Is there really, do you really believe there's any other hope than the spirit of Jesus living in the hearts of people and transforming them? There is no other, like, I am amazed right now. I don't even know if amazed is the right word. I, I, I am I'm gripped by the amount of messaging out there that says we are getting better, there's progress, the world is just accelerating to, to it's it's just it's all good. And then at the at you know at the, the reality is you see and you, you see what's going on in people's lives, you're like, this world is a mess to say, like, that, that's putting it lightly. And it's getting darker. So, we have to come to this last part of the beatitude. They shall see God. And this, this is where we begin to understand the second part of this beatitude. In a, in a different light, perhaps, than we maybe would have previously. What does it mean, they shall see God? It's an important question to really wrestle with. And I, I actually don't know if it's actually one that we can answer fully. But let's, let's try and wrestle this. In his, in his commentary on the Beatitudes, Daryl Johnson notes, he says, See, in what sense... 
I'm not sure. No one is sure. Jesus' promise brings us into a place of great mystery. How is Jesus using the verb see? If we only knew how he was using that verb. Is he using it literally, figuratively, metaphorically, right? Why didn't someone stop him? Hey, Jesus, Jesus, how are you using that right now? (laughs) They didn't. Many times, like Moses' prayer, I think in Exodus 33, 18, our prayers are something along the lines of, oh, Lord, show us your glory. Like, they, like there's a heart cry and yearning for that, right, in the followers of Jesus. But, and that's not wrong, obviously, but Psalm 51 and Psalm 139, they show us that we need another perspective to help us to follow God's way. We also need to be praying, Lord, Show me, me. Because while we want and need awareness of God, yes, absolutely, we also need awareness of self. And the gift of the Psalms, and in particular, these that we were looking at, they're showing that that while God does know it all, we need to be asking for revelation of ourselves. The, The... what we mean by that is that the pure in heart, they aren't content with living on the surface. They, they, there's an interior resolve for the pure in heart to go deep beneath the surface and invite God to reveal and eliminate the blind spots in them. And we need to talk then about the promise that Jesus gives. They shall see God. Is there a more incredible promise in, in the Beatitudes? I mean, it, it, is, it is an astounding promise that Jesus makes here. When you think about it, everything else pairs in comparison to it. it it's at least on the level of the highest of, of any of the promises here. So, what exactly did Jesus mean by this? And it gives rise to questions in us like, Do we really believe this? Or are these just words on a page that, you know, we see, but they remain just that? Like words that we pass by, we go, oh yeah, that sounds nice. That's that's a nice idea. That's, That's a utopian vision. Is it really possible to see God? That's the question that we need to wrestle with. Why do we need to wrestle with this? Why do we need to process this? Because if we don't embrace this as possible, this is what I want to suggest, it gives doubt to the rest of what Jesus says. If this is like, well, I don't know if I really believe this, then you go, I don't know if I really believe anything that Jesus said. That's where the devil worms his way in and goes, is it really true? Did God really say? You really believe that you're going to see God? Have you? And then you get to questions like, why bother with any of this? Hey, you know what? Maybe this is all just made up stuff. I'm going to start to deconstruct. So we got to wrestle with this. Is Jesus speaking of coming to see that there is a God? Like, is that what he's talking about? Like, that we will come to see, oh, there, God is real. Right To recognize that God's presence is with us, that he's good, that he's for us, that he dwells in us by his spirit. 
Are, are we, so are we, is Jesus talking about being a mentally and emotionally cognitive of God's presence? Or is Jesus speaking of seeing God as we would see other parts of reality, like the same way that we see other physical objects that we will see God? Numbers 12 tells us that in, in some respect, Moses saw the form of God. In Exodus 33, when Moses is cry, when he cries out there, Lord, show me your glory, God responds, he says, I, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And, and he says, I will proclaim my name. But he says, I will not show you my face because no man can see my face and live. So, is Jesus implying here that Moses wasn't pure in heart because he wasn't able to see God? There's lots to process here. There's lots. There's mystery. But, but there is a longing that awakens something within our heart. That this longing to see God and, and to know him that is in us. There's a desire that's in us. And, and, and what we see is that history will culminate in the fulfillment of this desire. So Revelation 21, verses two and three, it says there, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. It goes on to say in Revelation 22, 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So amidst the mystery of this, there's clarity when we consider that the Beatitudes are not levels to attain, but are formed in us as we follow the way of Jesus, the result of us being with Jesus. And so this, this brings us back to the, the purity of heart. Ultimately, this comes as a result of getting Jesus, or more accurately, Jesus getting us. By his good news, capturing our hearts, and we are wowed by him. So I want to give you one more Daryl Johnson quote, because I think this is really good. He says, we attain purity of heart, not merely by the imitation of Jesus, but by the incorporation into Jesus, the Christ who had perfect purity of heart. See, that, that's one of it. That's, that's it right there. It's, we're not pure in heart. We know it. But there is one who is. And it's as we are invited into relationship with him that we begin to take on characteristics of him amidst our brokenness and amidst all the other stuff going on inside of us. We start to become like Jesus. That is the miracle working power of the Spirit that makes no sense in fallen human beings. So, 
this isn't about working ourselves into places of anxiety or worry like, am I pure in heart? Have I met the mark? Oh my, I, I can't do this. Rather, it's about looking at Jesus. It's, it is about the pursuit of relationship with him. It's about enjoying him. It's about being with him. It's about inviting Jesus' examination into us. It's about confessing sin to him. It's about admitting blind spots in our lives and seeking healing. It's all that. And so, you know, whatever it means to see God, whatever is Jesus is promising, we can respond, I want it. I want that. And as we seek Jesus, and we keep pursuing his way, we will experience the reality of God. That is the promise. And, and, and those are those instances, those are those experiences throughout life where we go, I can't explain it. I can't show you, you know, data that, make, that proves this. I can't show you scientific proof, but I know that I have met God. And I've seen God. Not maybe in a physical sense, but some have seen that too. So I want to I give you some application here. Again, just some questions that um, can help us as we process this. Again, like all these Beatitudes, a 45-minute message does not suffice on working this out in our hearts. So, five questions. First one is, how, the question is, how am I doing? Ask yourself, like, like how, what am I fearful of? Where do I feel unsettled? Do I have peace? Again, just, just an examination of our heart. Second question, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being very high, one being non-existent, where would I rate my passion and desire for God right now? This, this isn't about, again, this isn't about like, having to meet a certain standard. This is about just honest examination right before the Lord going, this is where I'm at, Jesus. I I want more. Three, am I opening myself up to God's examination? How will I invite God to examine me this week? Four, is there sin in my life that I need to confess to the Lord? Again, because we know he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? As we confess for him. We just embrace the truth of 1 John 1. Five, where are there blind spots in my life? Ask the Lord to reveal those to you as well. Jesus, where is there blind spots that you want to make me aware of? All right. Let's, uh, Jen, if you want to come up and let's, let's pray to close and invite the Lord. Father, I want to thank you for your presence here with us this morning. I want to thank you for how you've been with us as your people, how you've met us in worship and in your word this morning and how you are, you're speaking to our hearts. We thank you for your truth, God. We thank you that this truth will never, ever end. This, the, these words are eternal truth. We thank you that your words in Scripture are the very means of life.
We ask that you would, you would go deep inside of us this week. Lord, I pray that where we are struggling, where we are hurting, where we are facing challenges, where we are feeling unsettled, Lord, where we, there is just any number of circumstances right now that are causing us angst. Lord, we want to meet you this week. Lord, help us to, to know where our hearts are at. Pray that you would reveal that to us. And Lord, would you stir, stir, stir in us more of a desire to meet with you, to fellowship with you, and to be in your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name.